Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about Michael Jackson. I'm very privileged to be joined by the New York Times' former theatre critic, Margot Jefferson, whose recent book is called On Michael Jackson. Margot, welcome. Can you tell me, first of all, why, why Michael Jackson? What was it that you thought, this is, this is my subject? You're the, memoir, the author of a previous memoir, Negro Land. Which well, actually, that was memoir. afterwards. Negro Land oh, subsequent, subsequent to Michael Sorry, yes. Jackson. But, you know, you're right. I'd been spending all these years doing books and theatre and all of this criticism. I wanted to approach one of those um, cultural passions you have that doesn't usually make its way into you know, sort of official, you know, legitimate, more um, high culture prose. Michael Jackson, I really felt, was a performing genius, you know, one of the totally central figures in pop culture, pop music, black culture, um, white culture, you know, across, across the board. And, and just at the time I began thinking about writing the book, all of the, the this bevy of you know, transformation and tribulation and sexual abuse charges and why is he holding his baby over the um, balcony? All of this stuff was piling up. And I wanted to do two things. I wanted to give him his due because I'd been with him as a performer since he was a child before... I mean, did you grow up with... The well, I, I was grown up when um, the, the Jackson 5 made their first you know, hit, I Want You Back, in 1969, I believe it was. And I was already... I had just gotten out of college. So I was a young thing in her 20s when they burst on the scene. And all of my peers adored them as much as the the, the the children, you know, and early adolescents. So in that way, I'd been with Michael Jackson and I'd been watching him, you know, as an adoring but also assessing critic for decades. And I wanted to give so him... So sort his, of a bit of you was a fan and a bit of you had this I, kind of critical... I, and I also attachment. wanted to explore that relationship between a fan, worshipful fan, and that more distant critic. And he summed up so many American cultural obsessions about sex and race and what is black music, what is white music, you know, what is, what do you have to do to become a global superstar? Um, What's experimental? What's not? And as my editor and I said sadly to each other when we first talked about the book, let's give him his due and let's explore all this before he's destroyed and or self-destructs. That didn't, alas, the book didn't come out before that happened. You know, the, yeah, the sexual abuse charges, the settlements, we we feared it, yes. And the trial was gearing up, so, yeah. Even even though he was exonerated. So you wrote wrote the book, obviously, while Jackson was still alive. Very much. As all this was happening. Yes, yes. You know, this edition has a new introduction that says, you know, it was written from grief and in mourning and in And confusion, and your ambivalence, yeah. contradiction, yeah. I mean, would you have written a bit different book, do you think, had you written it after his death? I would, not a different book, but first of all, I would have included a chapter that examined, you know, his his cultural places um, and place markings that's, that followed the trial. I would not have ended with 
the trial chapter. You know, I would have explored more, depending on how soon, you know, after his death. But he, would, he was reborn in a certain way after his death. We were permitted as the culture, as critics, to step back, you know, and look at and assess and glory in the whole life. So, you know, I, I would have pulled back maybe and given more of a kind of critic fan's look at the whole body of work and art. But I would have also tried to place the after effects of the, the scandal, the mix of rapturous, insistent defense of him and loathing. You know, I, the country, yeah, the world was all stirred yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in how you arranged the book because you've done it almost as a sort of Kunstkammer, haven't you? You've you've gone through taking him, you know, walking round him. It's almost That's, like a museum tour. No, you you you're saying walking round is so right. Um, I had this line in my head, and I actually think that it is from To the Lighthouse, where Lily Briscoe thinks about Mrs. Ramsay, and the line is something like, "One needed a hundred pair." of eyes to get round that one person. And that was Michael Jackson, you know, as we revolved around all his cultural meanings and associations. It's also the way he worked in terms of his videos and his, particularly the videos, you know, so replete with illusions, visual illusions, cultural illusions, different dance styles, music styles. So yes, I wanted that sense of uh, almost theater in the round. Yeah. And you also, I mean, you start with actually, I mean, there are so many antecedents and cultural reference points, but you know, you sort of pretty much start with P.T. Barnum, which I think is really interesting. Yes, a kind of cultural, that, chosen cultural patriarch. You yeah. know, we, we all, and performers particularly, you, you have the legacies that you, um, you basically are kind of born with and, and, and inherit. Then they're all the ones you've chose. And, you know, he is ferocious. <laughs> kind of wonderfully aggressive imagination was busy fixing on these grand impresarios and P.T. Barnum, the ultimate showman who could contain so many other fantasies and realities. You know, he, what was the early line? I want my life to be the greatest act in show business. And that's, you know, lifted. That's what he did. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah. but what, I mean, one of the things that surprised me that I had, and it was actually... The racial side of it even goes all the way back to Barnum. That you know he was exhibiting, yes. you know, minority people as freaks. As and, if they, they, yes, you know, as yes, that's right. Th- I think the first of... most famous one, and in some ways more benevolent than some of those that followed. Followed, he found a former slave woman named um, uh, Joyce or Josie Heth, and he <laughs> put her in a you know kind of nurse's costume, nursing costume, and said she was the one hundred and fifty year old. Nurse of George Washington. Yes. <laughs> Good guy. You know, then there would be, you know, people of all kinds of non-white cultures dressed up as Fiji mermaids, you yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and then he'd get very confused and there'd be a Circassian maiden. You know, I mean, parts, you know, even of Europe and um, sort of Turkey became grist for the mill. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, this fantasia of otherness and exoticism and scary freakiness too you know there were always the conjoined twins there were always the the midgets the, the bearded dwarfs, ladies the bearded the ladies right the wedding ceremonies between two little dwarfs you know etc yeah. do you think i mean you know it, 
in this and also you talk you talk a bit about the way that Jackson's you know quite how directly actually he comes out of to start with a sort of minstrelsy tradition I mean you, know, you go you forget how close you know Daddy Rice was in a way to when that's the Jacksons right. were starting out no that that's really true and also this tradition of what were called picks, short for pickaninnies, but officially in vaudeville acts, particularly with women stars, these little black boys who could sing and dance up a storm would be part of the act. You know, and that's, you know, he started in a sense as the pick of the Jackson Five and then of the larger culture, and he moved into... There there are also chorus picks who who won't stand up and know, and those are the Jackson Five without Michael. I'm afraid so. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You know, and then he became the star, you know, the the black figure who, in fact, could take over from the Daddy Rices of the culture. Even Daddy Rice, you could say, his descendant, with whom Michael was in a kind of fierce competition in various ways was Elvis Presley. So, you know, the 20th century and the, you know, formal, the official designated white birth of rock and roll is Elvis Presley, and that's Daddy Rice, you know, appropriating and borrowing and learning all these black styles. That's right. And then there's Michael marrying his daughter, you know, competing with the king of rock and roll by calling himself the king of pop. Graceland, Neverland. And I, I, I think it might be, I can't remember whether it's in your book or it's in John Jeremiah Sullivan's essay on the. Oh, which is very good. Which is very yeah. good. Also, I remember when I read that thing. Yeah. Surely there's nothing new to say about my. Oh, gosh, there is. You know, I, and, you yes. know, I had the same experience with your book, you know. That, but it says that, that there was a period when his. He wouldn't let MTV play the video for Black or White unless they referred to him on air as the King of Pop at least twice a day. That's got to be John Jeremiah Sullivan. That's not shocking to me, but it's news to me. It makes sense. He was, you know, ruthlessly pragmatic. You know, we now think of the the later career where he was in debt and floundering and da-da-da, but he was a a brilliant businessman in those early days, and he was ferocious about everything from acquiring the entire Beatles catalog to... Breaking that race barrier. He outbid Paul McCartney, which I'd forgotten. Yes, yes, he did. And supposedly, this is in my book, you know, when Paul, because they had been friendly acquaintances, they'd recorded together, called up and said, Michael, he said, it's just business, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) He always knew how to play the innocent. Sometimes that was useful for him and sometimes it wasn't. But yeah, you know, he was very intent. He was enraged to come up against the barrier of a largely of an entirely white early MTV and those first years that he was getting Grammy nominations even though he was selling across every racial group he only got the segregated black category nominations he did not break into the best pop song and that enraged him you know so this two times a day, the title, the insistence, you know, and he was the first adult black artist whose videos were played on MTV. So he won. (laughs) Well, he did. The question that I think seems to hang over Michael Jackson most of all is how much of this, you know, we describe these transformations and these, you know, cross-cultural, you know, the breaking of barriers and genders and race and, you know, sexuality. Species Species barrier, exactly. He seems to have jumped pretty conclusively by the end. How much do you think he was in control of all that? And how much was he actually on? I mean, this becoming white thing, you know, was it vitiligo? Was it a 
you know, obsessive surgery. You know, we, one couldn't even tell whether the racial transformation was one that he was sort of in control of or one that he was... Driven uh, by, in driven the grip by, of. In the grip of, exactly. And that was the narrative we were most obsessed with in certain ways. You know, let's try that category we call all of the above. And, you know, for for an, for an artist, for any of us, you know, there's the area of our of our work in his case of his of his art life that we can be very much in control of and then there are the private interior psychological ones that we are not as in control of so i would say he did it does it turn as it turns out the um doctors who examined his body after his death confirmed that he had suffered from vitiligo did that mean that he had to become ghostly, ghostly, ghostly white. Um, that was a choice, you know, as, as were all of the facial surgeries. And it, everybody can track certain psychological dimensions or certain, you know, psychological motifs, let's say. He and his father, his father used to call him Big Nose. He, it was said over and over that he did not want in any way to resemble this cruel father, and that centered on the nose. Nevertheless, Nose surgery, after nose surgery, after nose surgery, you know, then you probably are moving into some kind of body dysmorphia, which is hardly unique to Michael Jackson in our culture. So let us say what, what drove him and perhaps what he could not fully control he, in his work as an artist until the body you know, gave way, he continued virtually through all of his performing life to be able to use. One of his final videos, and it's brilliant, is called Ghosts, you know, and he plays a kind of frightening wizard, you know, in an old castle that's where the children, as if he were the Pied Piper, um, you know, are mysteriously drawn to, and his enemy, you know, is a man who looks very much like, you know, some of the Los Angeles law, legal officials who were pursuing him in trial, but there's this, you know, it could be an Edgar Allan Poe story, but it's an allegory, and he, you know, his face keeps changing, and he becomes monstrous, and then he becomes this ghostly and yet masterly version of himself. So to the end, he is using, there he was using every accusation, every myth, you know, every charge that had been turned on him and using it brilliantly, yeah. it's staging very, it's, it. It's that kind of acquisitive quality to him that's, that's so gripping as well. That I mean, I think, you know, in the book, you're very good at parsing his dance moves and saying, you know, that particular twist is suddenly the Chitlin circuit, and then this is, you know, early soul, and this is, you know, the yes. wet of his hands. That's you know, Sammy Davis Jr. There's Fred yeah, exactly. Astaire. Yeah, bang, yeah, bang, yeah. Bang. Judy Garland. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's extraordinary. That shows a kind of, you know, total perfectionist concentration and mastery and practice. Yes, that's the other notorious thing he could do, wasn't it, is he could turn and bring his face right back to the, exactly the same distance from the mic. Yeah. He, you know, yes, um, exactly, exactly. And he could be terribly, terribly still, and that was just as compelling, you know, which is a wonderful, wonderful art. Now, do you, do you read him differently as a black writer than... You would. I mean, do you think his his sort of cultural meanings are stable depending on where you're looking at him, or do you, do they shift? I mean, as as somebody black, do you read him in a different way than I, the white uh, community might? Different is strange. Just thinking of John Jeremiah Sullivan, Hilton Alls, 
who also wrote very well about him and I. You have a straight white man, you know, you have a queer black man, you have a black woman. We, there are certain racial traditions, tropes, histories we are all reading, and they're not profoundly contradictory, at least in these yeah. three cases. I would say it's a question of emphasis, inflection, and maybe a certain kind of emotional, cultural investment in the, you know, in the, in the racial traditions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I personally was um, obsessed, and that certainly has something to do with my racial interests, you know, and also as, as they translate into the arts. I've been fascinated by, obsessed with minstrelsy and all the ways it plays out in every subsequent popular music form, those performative, racial, appropriative, you know, and then um, dynamics. And of course that has, you know, that has a lot to do with me as a young black woman. When I started out with my interest in it, you know, obsessed with how black people made their own culture and made their way into and how they were constantly you know, segregation, integration, but interaction, appropriation. You know, I mean, which your, isn't to say, memoir. you know, there were white people who've written very interestingly about menstruacy. I think it's, again, it's your inflection. It's your, you know, where the particular obsessive beats come. Yeah. Well, actually, your, your memoir, Negroland, you know, the title of that describes, I mean, we hear a lot about white privilege, a sort of version of black privilege, or at least of the privileged black class, you know, <laughs> and... Michael certainly didn't come from Negro no, land. No, he know, came Gary from the, he came from the black working class. Yeah. Did he did he as you say it, enter Negro land as he became successful or was that a was he going around the side of this? He because you were describing to, your own privilege upbringing in Chicago was right. Was um, and, and, that, yeah. yeah, the and, and black version of the haute bourgeoisie, mm. which called it liked to call itself what an elite. Listen, Michael was able to vault quite past that into. White land where some Negro, black, I would now call them, I use Negro for specific historical reasons, Michael vaulted into super wealthy celebrity land, you know. He didn't need black doctors and lawyers. I mean, they, they did some work for him, but he didn't need to socialize with them. He was socializing. First, His first um, encounter with anything like Negro Land would have been Barry Gordy, who was already a millionaire. But, yeah. you know, uh, that was the last kind of connection of super wealth and show business with Negro Land. After that, you know, he was meeting Sammy Davis Jr., Fred Astaire, Elizabeth Taylor, Liza Minnelli, Catherine Hepburn, Jane Fonda. He was a global celebrity. And all of them, all of them kind of, it's a family story, you know, and so many of the dynamics you were explaining that, you know, Barry Gordy became a sort of professional father. And he, and that was his know. alternative, in a sense, to Joe Jackson. Yeah. And they were both controlling and somewhat manipulative, but Barry Gordy had much more to offer. Um, nevertheless, Joe Jackson, whom I feel profound hatred for, but let us give him certain news. Joe Jackson knew that Motown was going to put the Jacksons at their service. They, you know, yeah. The Jacksons were not going to get past a certain point. So he helped push them with the, except, you know, with the exception, of, exception of Jermaine, who stayed behind. He pushed them into a new contract. Then it was Michael who decided, no, 
you know, I'm breaking loose of this too. My tyrant father, he knew he was 10 times more talented than his brother. He had major artistic and, you know, commercial world star ambitions. So he then took it from there and began and chose a series of mentors and role models. And many of them were women. You know, yeah. These women were, were just Diana Ross. Yes, she helped their career, but she also became this kind of mythological, the goddess, you know, who kind of first represented something beyond Motown that was also familiar. And when you think of his physical appearance, um, when he first starts choosing what I will call a feminine visual tradition, it's Diana Ross. Yeah. Yeah. So he doesn't, doesn't quite end up there. No, no, he doesn't. He goes, goes beyond. Um, <laughs> that's, yes, that's right. That's right. He uh, left them all behind. And the, the whole sort of grisly end, do you think that it's possible now to kind of talk unproblematically about Jackson's cultural meanings without... You know, this thing hanging over it. He was incredibly talented. He did all these oh, you mean the, the sexual, the sexual abuse, abuse charges, charges and the, the drugs yeah, that they, yeah. You know, I mean the no, it's not possible to talk unproblematically about that. I would say, particularly now that we have experienced the <laughs> underbelly exposed to the light that Me Too times up, those movements are revealing. You know, this they are they've awakened everybody, including people who thought. We were already woke, you know, yeah. to, you know, dynamics and intricacies and, you know, hidden cruelties of sexual abuse and of sexualized abuses of power and status. And you can't think of these, this, this you know, Michael Jackson and all of the children and some of, and, and all of the charges you, without you think, taking that you know, into I mean, We know account. he was exonerated, we know, you know, but I think a lot of people, you know, do take the view, kids don't make that stuff up. And, you know, he did have to settle for God knows how many millions to yeah. get one of the cases to go. I mean, yeah. do you think, get, think, do you think he'd done it case. to ask crudely? I mean, do you think that the charges were true? You know, he, it is very tricky. There's a continuum. It can all be abuse. But, you know, there is a continuum. You might share your bed with boys, which he acknowledged and called, you know, very innocent. But there it was. You can share your bed with boys. You can fondle. You can, in fact, have intercourse with boys. I don't know what, you know, I just don't know what happened. We don't. Would, will we ever, well, one young man has come forth again saying that he was abused. I don't know, but we, we can't push it away. No, he strikes me as a tricky case, though, because, you know, very often sort of minor cultural figures, you know, they're just like, right, we're never playing that person's record catalogue. You know, that when they're caught on this or charged with that, it becomes, you know, you can just erase them from the culture, more yes. or less. And, and not feel much of a loss. And not feel much of a loss. <laughs> yes. And we all go, you know, that's fine. We won't be playing any more Gary Glitter or whatever it is, you know. But with Michael Jackson, it almost feels like he's, he's too central. I know. And he's too good. That's right. For us simply to go, right, we're never playing Michael Jackson on the radio again, if that were, you know, the way we'd go. What I believe about Michael Jackson, and it's going to come up with plenty of other stars as well, you have to keep... 
these two realities in your mind. It is possible, totally possible, and why not to love and revere the art? And yet, when talking about these issues, when describing them, when we're, with, in the case of living celebrities, thinking about guilt, you know, charges, punishment, if that's appropriate, you can do both of those things, um, and we have to. But if, I mean, so do it, I it's, it's trickier, isn't it, when the art itself is a performance of the person? You know, it's not simply that, say, he wrote a wonderful song or he wrote a wonderful play that we can go and see the play and, you know, detach that. He is, as your book consistently stresses, a sort of living performance. And any, his any, iconicity as a person is therefore, you know, something that essentially can't separate him out. Dancer, actor, you know, film actor, stage actor is a series of personae. You know, yes, it's easier if you, you know, are, are a painter. You know, it's not even easier if you're a writer. If you're, say, a writer like Philip Roth, your person and those personae on the page are so intricately wound up. No, um, he is he's performing the... Um, narratives and with collaboration from other directors mm-hmm. and writers he's performing as a da- as a dancer he's he's a he's a he's an artistic persona yes we read you know we read many things into it but no to me that i i, I have i don't make yeah i don't make distinctions but look at it's it's how different is it than the wagner dilemma he was a yeah, Nazi, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you you take that in. You take in its consequences. You never presume to wipe that away. Does that mean you never listen to or love Wagner? It needn't. But this is not a problem t- t- for t- me because I'm not deeply involved. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff. I mean, it does it does go through the culture, you know. Yeah, and we all make our individual decisions, and but a lot of them are they're not just objective, high-minded decisions. A lot of these things we're talking about are based on how much you feel you love the artist. In which case, you know, you will keep these two realities going simultaneously. One will not. Neither one will x out the other. Well. I think we're probably running out of time, so I should just ask if you had to take one Michael Jackson song with you. Oh, God. To your desert, what's your... You know, it's, there, there's so many periods of my life, you know, the Jackson 5. At the moment... loves Heal the World, which is without a doubt his no, worst song. I, no, no, um, no, no. But maybe when we were seven, we would have loved maybe, it too. Maybe. maybe of the early songs, you know, I still do love Never Can Say Goodbye and I Want You Back. I love all of that. But most recently, I saw again the um, video for Smooth Criminal, and I think it's so brilliant. Hard to say, it, it's, is it better than Thriller? No. But I haven't seen it as many, many, many times. So maybe. Can I do a package? You can do a package. I can do a package you, you've deal right. of um, Thriller. Uh, no, a trio. Thriller, maybe the Motown performance of Billie Jean at the 25th anniversary and Smooth Criminal. Brilliant. Margot Jefferson, thank you very much. Thank you. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. Um, Very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.